0: Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio.
1: Today's episode is sponsored by CLOCK, the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium, the go-to organization for information about legal operations and connections to the best legal operations professionals in the business. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest helps attorneys explore new approaches to persistent operational and mission delivery challenges using innovation and creativity. He also leads an incubator program called Concept Lab, where legal professionals use design thinking and lean methodologies to make improvements. Senior Counsel for Innovation at the Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division, Dan Yi, welcome to Left Foot.
0: Hi, Nicole. It's great to be here.
1: Great to have you as a guest in our program, Dan. What personal strengths or habits have allowed you to successfully transition to a role focused on legal operations and innovation in the legal community?
0: Well, for me, I think the biggest thing is a kind of intense curiosity and fascination with learning about how all sorts of different smart people see and engage with the world. There's nothing I love more than to sit down and talk to someone who's a startup entrepreneur or a graphic designer or a product designer, behavioral economist, venture capitalist, to just sort of see how they see the world in front of them and they see the problems in front of them and the challenges and how they tackle them. Because that's the sort of thing where I just kind of try to vacuum up all of the little insights from their approaches, and see how I can apply and adapt those to the particular context that we face here at the Department of Justice. Can
1: you give us an example of a project where you were able to work with the team, come up with something that made a difference and allowed you to use what you bring to the table as someone who understands both the legal side as well as the technology and probably thinks more innovative than most.
0: I'll give you a couple examples. One of the things here at the Department of Department of Justice that we're always doing is we're always thinking about resource allocation. We don't really think about it maybe in the way that most people out there think about resource allocation. We have this tremendous challenge which is uh, how do we enforce the federal laws that apply across the country and in my particular area how do we enforce various civil rights laws and we have a a lot of people to do this department of justice has 11,000 attorneys which is bigger than i think any law firm out there in the world but that's still a limited pool of people that we can throw at this problem and How we allocate and how we spend those resources and how we invest the time of the people we have to solve these really tremendous problems, that's a really fundamental resource allocation problem. Going back to what we can learn from all these other folks, for example, like I remember having a conversation with this venture capitalist. All he does every day in his life is he thinks about how to look out at a sea of opportunities and how to strategically explore and assess which ones have the highest chance of paying off and how to marshal whatever limited resources, in his case capital, he has to spend in these different ways and to make the lead to the best outcomes. And that's exactly the sort of approach in some fundamental deep way that we're doing every day at the Department of Justice in terms of like allocating the people that we have and the manpower that we have to solve these big picture problems. In terms of intersection, I think, between technology and what we're doing in the legal space, I think a really fun small example is trial prep here at the Department of Justice we obviously we work on a lot of trials and trial prep is something that is incredibly stressful, incredibly challenging, rapidly changing conditions, hundreds of discrete tasks involving large teams of autonomous people working together. We have hard deadlines and time is just very limited. So that was a challenge where we did a quick design sprint around this challenge. And basically we asked, what are all the different contexts where people find themselves working under the same kinds of conditions out there in the world? And it turns out there's lots and lots of different times where people were working exactly under these sorts of stresses. So we prototyped and tested a couple different ideas, and we eventually actually settled on borrowing one from the software development world, sort of looking to the tech world, or not necessarily just a product, but almost a way of doing things. One thing we explored is adapting the principles of Agile and Kanban to the legal space and to the specific act of trial prep. Basically, we took a large piece of butcher paper, set up a Kanban board, and we ran it with one team who was getting ready for a trial, and they, built their Kanban board, where they visualized their workflow. All of these huge number, mountain of tasks, they were able to sort of break it down into discrete little singular things that needed to happen. They had a daily scrum every morning, it, and it was a classic sort of daily scrum, where 10, mini- 10 minutes every morning, they got together at the same time and asked the classic scrum questions about, what did you do since the last meeting? What are you gonna do for the next meeting? And what roadblocks are you hitting? And the whole thing cost us maybe five bucks worth of paper and post. This was a sort of idea that transformed this otherwise amorphous and stressful experience of trial prep that transformed the way that this trial team was able to manage that process. And that was completely borrowed over and adapted from the way that the tech industry has been doing for decades.
1: Yeah, I worked for a company that I had GE leadership. I worked at ADP and we definitely used Six Sigma, Lean Six Sigma and agile processes. It was something that was part of our business because we had a lot of transactions. Working with a lot of transactions, this was Outsourced Employee Benefits Administration. We had to do things effectively and and really look for areas or ways that we could improve and cut down time, cut down errors. But we were open to it because we were in the transaction business. So how were the legal teams? Were they open to it? Have they embraced it? Are you seeing people come to you and ask for assistance in, in rolling this out across the department? What's been the... Reception.
0: So this is a really, that's a fantastic question, and it's, it's one of the most fascinating kinds of things that I grapple with on a day-to-day basis, which is lawyers are usually the ones who are in the business of problem solving, and also they tend to be folks who, by their very nature, constantly look at risk in any particular situation. And that's just sort of conditioning that happens from law school all the way through, and it's what's valued in lawyers, is who are the people who are best at sort of identifying risk in anything that you do. Now that also spills over into exactly these kind of operational things, right? Like something as simple as adopting a new project management approach to a trial prep. There is going to be instinctive cultural reaction to it. like, what's the risk of doing it this way? So what you see is actually just almost product adoption curve, right? We've got the folks who are like constantly pushing the envelope and we have a really great number of those folks who are willing to jump on this and say, that looks fantastic. I'm going to try that the next time I have a trial or I have a hearing. It's But it's a small number. Then you get into the early adopters. And we, again, we have a fair number of those. And those are people who once we've tested it out a little bit and we've demonstrated value, then they, are, they sort of get on board. And then you sort of get into that middle of the curve where it's people who are sort of on the fence. They're slowly coming along, and then you have people on the backside who are very, very slow and reluctant to change. And that's fine. You know, this is what I love about projects like this and a lot of the role that I have is that if I can't demonstrate value for any one of these particular things to someone, and if they don't do it, that's okay. What I want to see is us moving along that product adoption curve. It doesn't have to happen all at once, but it can happen over time. And so for a lot of these projects that I tend to work on, it's strategizing about how can we continue to keep on moving along that curve.
1: You said one of the things is you you want to, and if you're not demonstrating value, you wouldn't expect that there would be adoption and reception to these ideas. I'm assuming you're demonstrating value using data. Is that accurate? And what kind of data are you showing? Are you using data? And then what kind of data are you presenting to those teams to really get buy-in?
0: Yeah, you know, it really depends on who the stakeholder, particular stakeholder is, right? Like if you're talking about higher up in any organization, they're going to be more interested. Their value propositions are based around things like time saved, uh, improved outcomes, et cetera. If you're talking at the sort of end user level, these are like, in a case like the example I gave, these are like the trial attorneys who are actually executing using Agile or Kanban or, or whatever, or whatever the system or product or whatever those folks are thinking more in terms of like, is it saving me anxiety? Is it saving me stress? Right? Is it improving my ability to do a good job? In each of those things, we want to try to gather different kinds of data. So certainly there's a time element of it. How much time are we spending on any given thing, any given kind of task? But then we're also trying to gather that qualitative data about like, what was the experience of that person using this approach or using this product or whatever, and how can we translate that out into something that would be meaningful to whoever the particular person is that we're speaking to, uh, whether they be end user, decision maker, et cetera, et cetera.
1: That makes perfect sense. I'm assuming in your pursuit of innovation and rolling out innovation, as you talk to outside organizations that are either legal tech companies or other teams that are presenting ideas maybe it's in the concept lab, what are you looking for in those solutions? Is it mostly time savings, efficiencies, ways of doing things better? What are the factors you're looking for in each of those legal tech companies, each of those ideas that are presented?
0: It's all of those. So let's say we're talking about like outside vendors, right? And this is always something that the department looks at. And we have fabulous folks, in the Department of Justice who work very, very hard on identifying developments in industry and targeting things that might potentially be useful. We look at these particular sort of outside vendors. One of the things that I always ask myself, is this actually solving a real problem for us? I know that earlier you spoke with Lucy Basley from Microsoft, who I think is fabulous, and she pointed out something that I thought was very smart, which is, you know, people, processes, and tools. And, but in that order, right? Like, the tools come last. In this world of sort of outside vendors, we're seeing the tool first, right? But it's sort of really understanding okay, here's the tool, but is it actually solving a real problem for us as an organization? On the vendor side, is there a willingness to really drill down and understand our organization at a deep level and understanding like what the value propositions are for us? So that could be exactly like time savings. It could be improved outcomes. It could be lower stress and pain points for the attorneys that we have out in the field uh, and sort of understanding that entire ecosystem. Is there a way that we can actually test and validate whether whatever this outside vendor is offering Is going to actually work once we put it into our ecosystem. Like, will people use it, right? Like, if we actually put it in place, it can be the most wonderful product in the world. But then, like, when we actually put it out there, is this something that our universe of DOJ employees will actually use and embrace? And is this something we can move along that product adoption curve? Those are definitely the things that we look at, that I personally look at when I'm thinking about the different options that emerge out there.
1: There has to be some consideration to that. Lucy made the comment in her interview that it's great to have all this technology, but if they're not going to use it and it's going to take way too much time to get team members to embrace it, it's not really a cost savings.
0: For us, I'd also add an added challenge in the government is there are significant transactional costs for us to move, right? Like we're an enormous organization and we have um, a lot of regulations that sort of guide and dictate what we can do. So for us to actually move in any one particular direction, there are significant transactional costs to doing that. And that adds into that equation when we think about what's the next big leap that we're really gonna go to. Instead of spending five years exploring this next big leap and then we go out with a product and actually nobody ends up using it. You know, to me that's a tremendous uh, lost opportunity. A lot of the thinking that I do is around how can we actually increase the chance before we get to that stage that whatever we're going to do actually is going to work when we put it out there.
1: It makes a lot of sense. Whether you can do it in somewhat of a pilot or not, whether that works in your organization and really being able to invest enough to understand if it's actually going to have an impact and be, and be embraced by others. I mean, I think some decisions have to happen.
0: On that point, I work in this building, in the main justice building, where the hallways are really, really wide. I asked someone the other day, why are the hallways in the main justice building so wide? And, and this is, of course, my like efficiency gene kicking in, saying, this is a lot of wasted floor space here. <laughs> and and actually, you know, they explained it, and they said, back when the building was built, uh, you had secretarial pools who would be outside in the hallways so that when a lawyer wrote up a brief, they would hand this document over to the secretary, and the secretary would then type it up. It just occurred to me that here in the Department of Justice, and, and I'm sure in a lot of law firms and legal organizations around the world, there are lawyers there who predate word processors, just to kind of get your mind around that, right? And imagine being a lawyer who practiced law by essentially handwriting or maybe like rough typing a brief, and then or dictating it to a secretary. Any given draft, you basically had to go through a, a person typing every single letter on a typewriter and then going back and forth and iterating on that draft. I can't imagine what that process was like, but the adoption curve can't be so slow that like, for example, the Department of Justice would be here today, like still typing up briefs because we didn't want to go to word processors. No organization can be in that space. Really, no organization can effectively operate in their industry anymore without moving into certain directions.
1: It makes things so much easier. And once you realize that the learning curve is, is so small, and today we all experience that, right? We get something new or a new tool that they're designed in a much more intelligent way. And now a word from our sponsor. CLOCK, the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium, is a nonprofit organization of legal operations professionals providing education, the sharing of best practices, networking, and community. CLOCK is driving positive change across the corporate legal services ecosystem. Go to CLOCK.org, that's C-L-O-C.org, for information on the benefits of membership and the annual Corporate Legal Operations Institute. Dan, can you share with our listeners an example, and as much detail as you're comfortable, of something that you and your team have been able to introduce that was embraced, was innovative, at least at the point that you were introducing it, that really has shown success. We're, similar to the example earlier, another example where something really has been embraced by the lawyers that you're working with.
0: I actually would point to that trial prep example. So we're working on a lot of bigger things that are still on the stove and they're still cooking. And that's one where it was literally a lunchtime project that we were able to generate and, and work on. Maybe over the course of three or four days, we were able to do a rapid design project around this. And it was entirely just an organic group of people who who sort of came together around this and worked on these things in addition to all the other stuff that they had to do. We were able to design, test, and study the impact of this little tiny step that we could take, and we could then package it up and deliver it, almost productize the idea of legal project management and, and applying that framework to trial prep. That's one where we're seeing actually really great movement along that product adoption curve, where the number of people who have been able to see what we did in that and then have adopted it and applied it in their context, it's really tremendous, actually, to see that. We sort of see that as just like an example where it's, again, a tiny example, but it's one where we actually solve real problems for people. That is the key ingredient to that being successful.
1: That idea that it solved a real problem, I think that's, of course, what makes people want to get on board. They had a real problem and you were able to solve it. Time savings and efficiencies, feeling more in control are probably the other outcomes that came from that. Excellent. Strong example. Is there an example of one where there was a project where you said either yourself or someone in the group said, hey, I think we need to look into this because it will make a significant improvement, and it wasn't successful. Is there an example like that that we could learn from?
0: I like to think of every project, actually, the result of probably... 30 or 40 or 50 or more ideas that ultimately we quickly looked at and we quickly sort of generated and thought about, but then we quickly abandoned. That actually, to me, is a very successful project where we look at a core problem and we generate tons and tons of possible ideas and solutions around that after really marinating and doing that front-end research about what the problem actually is. And then... We just sort of quickly test the most promising of those and then quickly as we can and as cheaply as we can discard all of the ones that are not getting traction, that don't seem promising. In that sense, I think every single project, if we haven't gone through that and we haven't robustly discarded lots and lots of ideas that the folks that I work with may love, I actually worry a little bit about how robust our validation process was. More broadly, I think this will sort of resonate with a lot of the folks who who listen to the podcast. Any sort of tech project, this is a great example. I can't tell you how many times And I don't think we're alone as an organization. I can't tell how many times a piece of software was put into place that we expected would solve real problems. But then what you notice is you put it into place, you go through all that work to launch it. You just don't get far up the adoption curve. Maybe a few people use it for a little while. Like for example, you want to create organizational knowledge sharing. So you take all this time and you build out like an internal network to create like communication channels internally. But then you find out out of an organization of thousands of people, about 20 use it. And then those 20 feel pretty lonely in this platform. And eventually even those people stop using it. Every organization has their own own set of stories like this. You know, like I touched on earlier in the government, these difficulties, in my opinion, are even compounded. The effort that would go into getting to that stage where you fully launch a digital product like that, it's tremendous, really a tremendous amount of input that has to happen. The cost of sort of that, not paying off in the end, and the adoption not happening, that really is, it's a really significant thing to consider. In any large organizations, it's really so, so important to get a full and complete understanding about how the entire ecosystem will react and respond to anything like that, and the decision makers need to answer, obviously, whether like, a particular solution will actually deliver on a value proposition that's important to them, be it time savings, be it improved outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. But they also need to know like, is it a real problem? Should we be framing the problem differently? I love the classic example of the elevator being too slow. And so people complaining about like an elevator being too slow. And then all a design team did was put in like mirrors in the elevator. Instead of re-engineering the entire elevator and making it go up and down faster, right? Like they just put in mirrors. And suddenly no one complained about the elevator being too slow anymore because that wasn't actually the problem. The extra 30 seconds the elevator took wasn't a big deal. People just didn't like sitting around waiting and not doing anything, but now you actually give them something to do while they're in there for that 30 seconds. That's the real problem to solve, right? Problem framing it, thinking about whether a given product will actually solve that problem. And then getting into that, if we build it, will they come? Will people actually use the thing? And then once we actually decide to make that leap and go in that direction, what's the internal sustainability model that'll make sure that this is going to be something that lasts? and we will continually be moving up that product adoption curve.
1: There are so many things out there that we see, and you can tell very quickly that there's too many steps. It doesn't actually get the job done. You know, I've seen programs, even in business development for lawyers, that are so complex, and I'm like, there is no way lawyers are going to sit down. Even though it, it might work, they, they're not going to spend the time. It's, it's too cumbersome. It's too confusing. It takes way too much effort to get to to an outcome. So
0: The problem it's solving is actually not a big enough problem to make it worth anyone wanted to, to go to that effort such a core thing
1: any advice on adoption once you do have an innovation or a new a new offering that you want to bring to such a large group of lawyers any clues on how to get them to adopt something
0: this is a work in progress number 1 but i would say where i think there's tremendous opportunity that i'm fascinated by and this sort of goes back to this, what I talked about at the very beginning about looking at you know how smart people in different areas would tackle this problem. For something like that, if we're going to launch something internally or launch a new product or procedure or process or whatever it might be, I go back to even just thinking about how would like the smartest change management expert in the world think about this problem? How would they frame this problem in their mind? And so like now, you know, you have, there's tremendous insights from that field that you can just apply. And it and it touches on a lot of the things you just mentioned, Nicole, which is like, you know, generating a really compelling vision for this, finding influencers throughout the organization, people who maybe not by job title, they're the key people, but just Actually, when you understand the culture of an organization, these are the key people you need on board to be the champions and just out there pushing this and really being full-throated sort of advocates for this and looping those people in the process so they feel like, you know, they have like a meaningful and serious ownership role over exactly what the thing is that we're trying to do. So they can be out there and they can say, I helped build this thing and I think that we should be moving that way relentlessly generating those small wind and communicating those small winds
1: Great. Thank you for sharing that. That's somewhat of the secret sauce. We can roll out new things. We can talk about change that's going on, but getting people believing that, yeah, this will make a difference. Those are key parts of anyone's role that has to do with change, change management, change leadership, innovation. On the point of innovation, you said you've got some things that are kind of in the oven, on the stove, that are going to be rolled out with the intent of solving problems. What can you share with us, You know, based on your view of what's going on in the legal space, in, in the either firm or in-house environment, what, do you, what are you seeing out there that you would consider to be innovative?
0: I think when you look across the, so the world as automation tools and discovery tools and the application of AI, I mentioned word processor programs being this tremendous leap forward in legal productivity. I think, and this is my personal view, in 10 years or maybe less, that's basically going to be the word processor program of tomorrow in terms of the, the legal landscape. Now me personally, what I'm particularly intrigued by are looking at ways that legal service providers And by that, I mean broadly everybody in the legal sphere, like law firms, ADR, in-house legal services organizations, how they think about new ways of delivering on what they do, like conflict resolution and risk management services to the public. For example, I think that there's this tremendous work being done now in the access to justice world. We fundamentally have this gap between the number of lawyers who are out there and the legal service providers who are available with the people who need legal services. For a long time, you know, people have been talking about what are ways that we can increase the number of lawyers that can help people. There's a lot of interesting work being done in that space. But also what you see now are some really, really creative and inventive folks who are working on like, how can we actually create conditions under which someone can get a fair shake without a lawyer at all? It can even be in tiny, tiny ways. Courts have a program called Inform a, Popper, a sort of policy, which basically means if you're a poor person, you don't have to pay filing fees, right? Okay, so that lowers the barrier. I'm always amazed though by the fact a lot of courts still call it Informa a Popper, because that's like a product or a service that's being delivered to Specifically, one customer segment, namely people who are indigent, who who don't have a lot of money. And I question how many people who might actually be in that sort of essentially customer segment actually know what inform of hoppers would ever mean. And so it's like Apple coming out with an iPhone, great product, except they call it like the x j one one, two, one two. And then when someone and someone had to go in and ask exactly for an XJ one one two one two. And if someone actually asks, oh, why did you call it name it an XJ one one two one two? Because it's obvious the previous model was the XJ one one two one one. It doesn't really make a ton of sense. Like the actual person who's going to be consuming these uh, these services. But I think that there's tons and tons of interesting work there where people are starting to identify those things in the legal world, and they're trying very very hard to shift the legal world into a more user-centered direction. And so that's just like this glaring example. But I just think there's tremendous, tremendous work being done there where essentially people are putting their design hat on. How can we completely view the, the legal experience through the eyes of a client, someone who's not going to have any attorney helping them, or a juror who's walking into court? How can we view the experience through their eyes and find ways that can actually make this system work better for that particular person. Really exciting stuff, just in terms of what excites me on a day-to-day basis.
1: That's so interesting, Dan, because one of the things we're hearing from in-house counsel is this move towards outcomes, wanting to understand outcomes using data. And it's almost the same thing in a corporate environment. If we can say to the client, hey, based on the matter you presented, these are the possible outcomes. This is how it's going to play out. A, which one do you want to pursue? Or B, do you even want to pursue it at all? And I think the same thing when you talk about access to justice. I mean, if there was a likelihood of a particular endpoint, you could actually drive a person through the steps without having to, to really know the law. And, and, and of course, and that's in my layperson's opinion.
0: That's right. It's really something where any system that's too hard For the typical person to be able to understand it where you actually need to go out and hire a very, very expensive and very well-trained guide to just shepherd you through that system. That probably is a system where people should take a hard look at is that system too complicated? Are there ways that we can make that system work better? And by system, I mean that in a very, very big sense of like the legal system as a whole. And and I think that's exactly right. More and more you're seeing in the in-house context, general counsels who are being very clear to firms, the way that you're delivering information to us. Essentially, the products you're returning to us are not actually the products that we need within our context. You tailor those products that will actually work better for me in terms of what I need to accomplish here. That's exactly right. Really fundamentally the exact same principle.
1: Great great example and definitely a lot of runway there. I, we interviewed a, an immigration lawyer who talked about the challenges of what's going on in that space and the complexities of the different kinds of ways that someone would have to apply to be a U.S. citizen. A lot of areas for improvement, a lot of space for improvement. Dan, great content. We appreciate you sharing what's happening in your world of innovation at the Department of Justice. Any last points you'd like to share with our listeners about innovation, about you know what's happening in the legal space before we say goodbye?
0: Broadly, all of us in today's world live in this period of tremendous and rapid iteration and refinement in our day-to-day lives. Uh, We talked a little about it, say, in the consumer product world, for example, every year, sometimes on a weekly basis, we see constant refinement and development of ever more perfectly tailored user-centered solutions to various challenges we we have in our day-to-day lives right the other day i cracked my phone my phone screen and it was really annoying and i didn't want to go all the way to a phone store so i i just thought oh wouldn't it be great if you could you know just have someone come by your office and fix your phone for you while you were kept on working and it turns out this exists someone has come up with this right and so boom like at the same cost that it would have cost me to take a half day and like find a store where they'll fix my phone and I'll go without my phone for a day in fact someone just came by my office Sat, sat right at my desk while I was typing away, and then fixed my phone for me. And then the competition is so fierce, even a consumer-facing website could live or die based on a single extra click that someone has to go through compared to their competitor. I think if anybody thinks that in the legal space, those same forces and expectations won't intrude, that's really unrealistic. That's a really tremendous oversight because it's already happening in some ways, but I think that when you just look out at the legal landscape and think about all the ways that the fundamental service that the legal industry delivers, what are ways that it could be delivered in ways that are more user-centered and more tailored to the people who are actually needing and consuming those services, it's not hard to sit down and immediately generate thousands on thousands of different different options and alternatives to that. It's only really a matter of time. I think we're living in this age where we're now used to it. We expect this kind of iteration and refinement. It's going to happen ever increasingly. Folks involved in the legal industry more broadly, they really need to be prepared.
1: A great last point. And I am still surprised when I hear people say it's all about the relationship, you know, the relationship I have with my clients, and they just trust that I'll deliver good service. I'm going to deliver in the way that I feel is appropriate. It's really interesting that there's still some pockets of people thinking that they can do it the way they've always done it and that's going to be okay. Roger Meltzer of DLA Piper spoke at Legal Week and he said, I run a legal ecosystem and the majority of the people in our firm are not lawyers. And that's an interesting point. He's saying it's an ecosystem now. It's it's not a firm of lawyers. It's a, it's a group of people delivering legal services, which is great. Strong last point. Thank you. Dan, it's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.